Well, good evening. How are you doing? Oh dear. Some of you aren't very sure. Have you had a good day? Again, some of you are still uncertain, thinking, is he talking to me? Um, Anybody going to the beach? Despite the rain, you still went. You think, I'm on holiday. I don't care that it's raining. I'm going to go to the beach. Hands up if you had an ice cream today. Really? Morelli's? That means I get a free one if I mention their name. Um, I had a great time this morning. I went actually to, to Causeway Vineyard and, and heard Pete, who's leading this evening's session, uh, preach. And when you go to a new church, you're always on the lookout for different ideas and things that you can steal and, and pass off as your own. And uh, I saw something this morning that I'd never seen before. Pete was preaching. Um, their, their, their guest speaker let them down at the last minute and very kindly Pete stepped in on Thursday and, and preached for them this morning. Um, but the person who was leading the, the, the service this morning uh, did something that I have never seen done, but which I'm going to take home to my church. Um, he said, Let, let's greet Pete as he comes to preach and got the whole church to stand and give him a standing ovation before he preached. And I thought that was genius. And he, he's an introvert, so he was thrilled to have you know, hundreds of people standing and applauding him. But I thought, genius, do that before you've preached. Don't do it after you've preached, because you don't know how they're going to respond. Do it at the start. It was actually a great, a great message. But uh, I'm going to take that home with me. The other good news uh, for you, uh, if, you've, uh, if you weren't here last night, is that um, they've given me a, a countdown clock. It's actually a count-up clock, uh, because I recognize that, that last night, but there's no time restrictions, and that's always a very dangerous thing to say to a preacher. Um, uh, last night and tonight, um, from now on, there, there will be a time restriction. But um, the good news is they've given me a, a count-up clock. The, the bad news is it's a calendar. Um, it's not actually a clock, so it just goes in days. Um, so we could be here sometime. Um, what we're looking at this evening is something that is central to who we are as Christians, But if we're honest, it's something we struggle with. It affects every single person here tonight who is a Christian. If you are a member of a church, it affects you. You have contributed to it in one way or another, for good and for bad. Because what we want to look at this evening is the whole area of the unity in the Holy Spirit. As we looked at last night, the Holy Spirit is given to every single follower of Jesus Christ. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out in a new way. From now on, the Spirit of God was available to every single believer in a way that he had never been available before. Before he'd been given to prophets and priests and kings. On the day of Pentecost, those prophecies from the Old Testament were fulfilled. And this new community... This thing that we call this miracle, this diverse mixture of people, of millions of people around the world that we simply call the church, came into being. But very quickly, we muck things up. Very quickly, as soon as you begin to read the pages of the New Testament, as the church began, the church started to break up, to fracture, to divide, and to fall out with each other. 
The one thing or one of the things that Jesus prayed for his followers was that we might be one in order that the world might believe. He prayed that we might be one in order that the world might believe. And what we're going to spend time this evening looking at is what does that mean? And how does that work out in practice? And how do we, recognizing that we're not going to be completely one until Jesus comes again, how do we work out that unity? What does that unity look like in everyday life and in your life and in my life? In a book that came out earlier this year, Steve Clifford, who is actually Pete's boss, he's the general director of the Evangelical Alliance, and, and Steve felt that he should write this book, which is called One, which charts his journey, his story, his history of being challenged about church unity, particularly in uh, the United Kingdom, in Great Britain, Northern Ireland, and even down into Ireland as well. And towards the end of the book, he relates this very sad but true story of what he calls the immovable ladder in the church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Now, you may have been there. I haven't. But apparently this ladder has been there for three, at least 300 years. It's on the site, the tradition has it, was the site of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. This ladder, no one knows how it got there. But this ladder is now the focus of a dispute between six Christian denominations. The Armenian Apostolic Church owned the ledge that the ladder sits on. But five others, the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Catholics, the Coptic, the Ethiopian, and the Syriac Orthodox churches also have a claim over this ladder. In 2008, a violent fight between Armenian and Greek monks went viral. And at all times, apparently, a Coptic monk is to be found sitting on a chair in one spot to maintain the claim of the Copts. One day, three or four years ago, he moved his seat 20 centimeters to get into the shade. A fight started that resulted in 11 people being hospitalized over a ladder in the church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Now, we may laugh or probably weep over a story like that. And we may think, how stupid to get so worked up over a ladder. But the reality is, in your church and my church, in your denomination and my denomination, in your stream or tribe, we have our own ladders. They might be theological. They might be historical. They might be ecclesiastical. Things that we fight over, metaphorically or emotionally, or even sometimes, as in the case of the, this uh, ladder in Jerusalem, physically. Your ladder might be music. Your ladder might be baptism water baptism or spirit baptism. 
I used to be a Baptist, and I say to Baptists, you do things the way you want to, and as Anglicans, we'll do it God's way. (laughs) I'm an ex-Baptist, so I can say that. It might be the role of men or the role of women in leadership. It might be how a church is governed or structured. Or perhaps it is the style of worship or the volume of the music in worship or indeed the work of the Holy Spirit. But the fact is that you and I are parts of churches, denominations, streams, tribes, etc. that have ladders. Metaphorical ladders, theological ladders, ecclesiastical ladders. Now, I am aware, very aware, as an Englishman working in a Scottish Episcopal or Anglican church speaking in Northern Ireland, that when we start to look at the subjects of unity and diversity and relationships between the churches, I'm entering dangerous territory. I'm aware of that. But Scripture calls you and Scripture calls me to work out what it means, as we were hearing of that story of those two deaf churches, as to what it means in practice to be one in order that the world might believe. If you've got a Bible or if you've got a smartphone with a Bible app um, or a tablet and you want to turn to the book of Ephesians, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus, if you know anything about it, was a difficult place to be a Christian. It was a huge city with a very checkered spiritual history. A sports-mad, sex-obsessed, multicultural metropolis. Its population numbered a third of a million people. It was a large commercial port on the western coast of what we now call Turkey. It was the commercial and admin centre of its region. It was the site of an annual Olympic Games held in an impressive stadium that could seat 24,000 people. It was a large, bustling centre of commerce and trade. It was a significant city, not the capital of Asia Minor. It was, if you like, the Glasgow equivalent to Edinburgh. It was the religious centre also of that particular region. And in Ephesus, there were three temples where people could worship the Emperor Nero. But dominating the city architecturally and spiritually was the temple to the goddess Diana or Artemis. And this is one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was enormous. It was supported by 127 60-foot-tall ionic pillars and was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. This thing was huge. It employed 20,000 cultic prostitutes and was led by women clergy. That may explain why Paul says some of the things that he does about women and wives in this letter and also in 1st and 2nd Timothy who took over leading the church in Ephesus from the Apostle Paul. Now if you've got your Bible open, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are described as the creedenda. Paul is laying out what we should believe as Christians 
And perhaps some of this uh, material formed the basis of his lectures when he was in Ephesus um, in the hall of Tyrannus that he, was, he hired for two and a half years when he was kicked out of the synagogue. And along with perhaps First and Second Corinthians, some of the sort of doctrinal stuff about what Christians should believe is contained perhaps in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. So chapters one to three are the creedender, what we should believe. And what most commentators reckon is that in chapters four to six, we have the agenda. The creedender is what we should believe. The agenda is how we should behave in light of what we believe. Because Paul was saying, if you believe in Jesus, it will affect the way in which you live. It will make a difference to how you think about yourself, how you think about other people, and how you think about the world around you. And it's striking that at the start of what we call chapter 4, there weren't these chapter headings in the original, but at the start of what we call chapter 4, Paul makes this plea for unity. So beginning to read at verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul is writing, if you remember, from his prison cell perhaps under house arrest. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with each other in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, he says, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So three or four things that Paul picks out as to what it will mean for this church in Ephesus and for every single church to be united. Not to be uniform, but to be united. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Literally, he's saying, walk worthily. That that phrase, live or, or walk, occurs four or five times throughout the book of Ephesians. 
And it's striking that Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And his immediate first thing that he highlights is relationships between Christians. Paul is utterly realistic in the advice that he gives, in the things that he asks for, and the the means by which he thinks these things can be achieved. Remember, if you know anything about the church in Ephesus, you can read about it in Acts chapter 19. He's writing to a church that was founded in a riot. So many people became followers of Christ and turned their backs on their previous way of life in Ephesus. They, they came and brought the charms and bracelets and it was, it was worth millions of pounds by today's um, value. And the people who economically were going to lose out because of this, uh, people getting rid of these charms and bracelets uh, and turning their back on the pagan religion of the time, the worship of Diana and the Emperor Nero, they were so outraged that they, they started a riot in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus was founded in a riot. don't know how your church was founded, but I suspect, well, maybe in Northern Ireland, I wouldn't know. Um, <laughs> But this church was founded in a riot. And Paul is saying, if you're going to live distinctively different lives as Christians, you're going to have to do certain things. Lives that are worthy of the calling that you have received. Interestingly, in chapter 5, verse 21 through to chapter 6 and verse 9, he says that how they're going to lead this distinctively different lives, they're going to be primarily through their distinctively different relationships in marriage and in the workplace and in the relationship between parents and children. Paul takes these household codes where the men particularly were absolutely used to having their their rights outlined and Paul flips them over and says, guys, you've got responsibilities, not just rights. And, and he, he, he twists them and he, and he, he enlarges them and he expands them. And, and now we read them and think, well, if you're a preacher, you know, you look at Ephesians 5.21 and think, wives, submit to your husbands. How am I going to get out of that one? Um, but actually, it doesn't say that. It says submit to each other out of reverence to Christ. It's about mutual submission. And Paul is saying, I want you to lead distinctively different lives that are mutually submissive in marriage and distinctively different in the workplace. And parents and children, I want your relationship to be different. And it's striking that it follows straight on from Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul 18, verse 18, where Paul is saying, go on be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately his mark of the ho- being filled with the Holy Spirit is not... How you worship, how you sing. It's not going to church. It's not how well you know the Bible. It's not how long your prayer is or how long your sermons are. The sign of being filled with the Spirit is are you leading distinctively different relationships in your marriages, in the workplace, and in parenting? It's fascinating, very different indicators of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit that today's Western church certainly uh, uses. Paul says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's utterly realistic. 
And for this to happen, he outlines four or five qualities. So verse 2, he says, be completely humble. Be completely humble. What does that mean? What is true humility? You've probably heard that famous definition. It's tweeted often that C.S. Lewis used to describe humility. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In that passage that was quoted in Philippians chapter 2, that hymn, if you like, towards humility, describing what Jesus did in in emptying himself of of his glory and, and descending and becoming one of us as a human being. Humility is right at the heart of it. As Jesus comes down literally to our level, becomes one of us and, and dies a human death, the death of a slave. Now we hear those things and we think, well, yes, that's Jesus. He was, he was humble. We've, 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 we've heard that for years perhaps. We don't realize how radical it was in the ancient world. Humility was a vice. It wasn't a virtue. And so when the Christians started to go around saying, and when people like the Apostle Paul wrote letters, and when people referred back to Jesus and said, he is the humble king, and we are to be humble, we are to be people who are characterized by humility, that was radical, that was countercultural, that was shockingly different to the world in which they were living. If you want to learn more about what humility meant in the ancient world and how the early church turned things upside down, I recommend a book by an Australian called John Dixon called Humilitas. Really helpful book in in explaining and understanding how radical humility was as a virtue in the ancient world. But again, Paul in Philippians and in Ephesians is, is utterly practical. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, you should think of others better than yourselves. I mean, if we're honest, we don't do that in churches, do we? we? We individually, we look around. Already this evening, you've taken a look at the person that you're left and the person that you're right. Just check that they're still awake. Just have a quick look at them, nudge them. And you're, you're thinking, obviously you're not going to articulate this, but you're saying... I'm not as holy as this person, but I'm way better than him. And we do that. We 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 correlate ourselves. We you know we sort of gauge. Do we honestly, honestly think that everybody in this tent this evening is better than we are? Do you honestly think that? Because that's what true humility is. It's thinking that every every single person in the tent is better than you are, is more spiritual, is more holy, is nicer, kinder, gentler, more gracious, more compassionate. See, if you think that, not thinking less of yourself, Paul says that we should have a sober estimate of who we are it's not what in Scotland we call worm theology oh lord we are but worms and there is no good within us 
That's really prevalent in Scotland. Sure it isn't here in Northern Ireland. Doesn't mean thinking more lowly of yourself. It means having a sober estimate of yourself. But neither does it mean thinking more highly of yourself than other people. Humility means that you think other people are better than you, more deserving than you. But how that is communicated, Paul says, needs to be with gentleness. Be completely humble and gentle, verse 2. Gentleness, or other words used to translate this word, are tenderness or kindness. A couple of months ago, I was at a, a conference in London and saw an amazing interview that Nicky Gumbel did with Jean Vanier, uh, the founder of the Larche movement. And uh, Jean Vanier recited at one point in the interview that, that he'd, he'd asked a psychiatrist, what, what was the mark of being a mature human being. And this psychiatrist had responded with something that was, on one level, quite surprising. He said, kindness, tenderness, gentleness. The ability to look at somebody else and not judge them. The ability to listen to somebody else and not judge them. The ability to touch somebody else or allow them to touch you and not judge them. There were about 5,000 people in the Albert Hall and everybody went as still as you are now because you could hear people thinking, wow, that means I'm not a mature human being because if people were to describe my life and gentleness and kindness and tenderness and that ability to look at somebody and not judge them or or listen to them and not judge them I don't think that characterizes who I am wouldn't it be amazing if the church in Northern Ireland became known for its kindness just like the church in Scotland I think you like the church in Scotland face a challenge. Over the last 20 or 30 years, because of things that have happened in our culture and in our society, the evangelical church, and I'm part of the evangelical church, has become very, very good at becoming known, some would say even infamous, for what we're against. And we need to be honest about that. Wouldn't it be amazing if the church of Jesus Christ, if the evangelical part of the church of Jesus Christ in Great Britain and Northern Ireland were to become known again for its kindness, for its gentleness, for its tenderness? Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. And again, thirdly, he's realistic. He says, be patient. He knows that humility and gentleness are not easy. And so he says, be patient. Literally, he says, be willing to wait for the other person. Be willing to wait for the other person. Now, again, that's not easy in our society, in our culture. We live in a society, in a world which is very quick, very instant. You know, most of us stand beside a microwave oven with 
looking at our clocks on our phones or our hands with our, our feet tapping away because it's taking a bit long. And it's probably five seconds longer. And we want, we want things to happen like that. We live in an instant microwave world. The problem is that's affected some of us the way that we think about spiritual maturity even. We want things to be instant. We want it to be quick. Well, the bad news is that God doesn't often work like that. He can bring about instant healing, but he knows that most of us couldn't cope with that. Paul says, be completely humble and gentle and be patient with each other, bearing with each other in love. That word love, it literally means unconquerable benevolence. Unconquerable benevolence. Again, the early church through the person of Jesus redefined love. This Greek word agape, self-sacrificial love. The early church was known for it. Again, is the church in Northern Ireland known for its love? When people think of your church, when people think of my church, is the first word that comes to their minds the word love. Some research was done in Scotland um, a couple of years ago, and Christians in Scotland were amazed to discover that actually people who are not Christians think better of the church than we realize. So only 7% of the people who were asked in, in secular 21st century Scotland thought the church in Scotland was homophobic, for example. Only 8% thought the church in Scotland was judgmental. I'd have thought it was up to about 50 or 60%. I wonder what the research would be if it was done in Northern Ireland. I wonder what the research would show if it was done in your town, in your village. If you were to be brave enough and ask people that live around you what they think about your church, what the words are that they would use to describe your church, would they describe your church as loving? Would they describe your church as kind? Would they describe your church as humble? Would they describe your church as gentle? Would they describe your church as patient? It's very interesting to me over the years that it was about 20 years ago, just after I'd moved to Scotland, we had a guest speaker come who was an expert on Celtic Christianity. Now, there's lots of nonsense, if we're honest, that's been written about Celtic Christianity, the sort of romanticized idea of, of Celtic Christianity. That the, the, the early Celtic church were a sort of mixture between the Irish rugby team and, and saints, and they sort of had a great time and great, I think the word is crack, and uh, they just had a wonderful time together and moved sort of in some sort of organic, um, sort of pioneer, fresh expression sort of bit sort of hippie way and uh, and they sang songs like stand up for the Ulstermen and they just sort of you know just moved through Ireland and moved through Wales and they moved through Scotland and they were cool well there were lots there were good things that were good about the Celtic church but the person who was speaking that night is, is an academic and he's an expert on the Celtic church and and he told us that the Galatians was written to a Celtic church. And I'd never heard that before. And he said, well, if you think about it, Galatians is written to people who were Gauls. Now, I knew about Gauls. I've read Asterix. 
But he said, well, they were, they were Gauls. They were Celtic Christians. And he's a Scot as well. And he said, isn't it interesting that if you look at Galatians, one of the things, one of the central themes of the book of Galatians is that Paul is writing to that Celtic church and asking them, begging them, pleading with them to avoid one thing, legalism. And he said, isn't it interesting that if you look at the church in Wales, and he said, if you look at the church in Ireland, and if you look at the church in Northern Ireland, and if you look at the church in Scotland, we have such a history of legalism. It seems to be something within the Celtic soul that it becomes a default. And it was there in the Galatian church It's there in the Scottish church. And if we're honest, it's there in the church in Northern Ireland and it's the church there in the church in Southern Ireland as well. This list in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6 is perhaps the equivalent of what we were looking at last night in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 23, what we call the fruit of the Spirit. The character of God, the character of Jesus that is reproduced in you and in me as the Holy Spirit lives in us. And again, it's interesting to see the markers of maturity as a Christian. Did you notice in verse 13 that that Paul says, Until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He's saying you're not a mature Christian unless your relationships with each other are characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And that's how you know you're a mature Christian, and that's how many of us this evening know that we're not mature Christians. It isn't our knowledge of the Bible. It isn't the length or regularity of our prayer time. It isn't which church or conferences we attend or lead or which podcast we listen to. The criteria that Paul outlines in Ephesus are deeper and more significant than ours. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is about radically committed relationships in marriage, the workplace, and between parents and children. Maturity as a Christian is also relational and character-based. It's not doctrinal. It's not doctrinal. You can have the soundest, best, most thought through doctrine, but if your character is not becoming more like Jesus, you are not a mature Christian. Paul says there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. What we believe is important, but how we believe them is more important. And one final thought for this evening. All these verses that we've looked at tonight are plural. All these verses are in the plural. The problems occur, and it affects much of Western Christianity, when we begin to apply these verses individually. Because these verses, these characteristics, were supposed to be worked out in our faith, in relationship, in community, in the church. You see, what God has done is he set up this thing called the church, this new community 
that from now on is supposed to be a visual aid of what it looks like when God comes and lives in people. We are supposed to be a visual aid to the world outside of what it looks like when God lives with people. That is the purpose of the church. So when people look at your church and when people my, look at my church, they should be able to see what it looks like what God, when God lives in the lives of individuals. What characterizes those relationships? What characterizes those attitudes? And how you deal with differences. How you deal with times that you're hurt. How you deal when other people really, really, really annoy you. I've been a Christian for 39 years this year. Became a Christian when I was one obviously no 17 and I have to say I've I've been in Christian ministry now for over 30 years as well and there are so many times when I've I've said to God you know it'd be so much easier being a Christian would be so much easier if it wasn't for one thing Christians it would be so much easier But you know, the bad news is that other people think that about me. Quite a few people think that about me. And the reality is that until we get to heaven or until Jesus comes back, we will always find people in the church difficult. And other people in the church will always find us difficult. But the test of our Christian faith and the test of our maturity is not to ignore it, and neither is it just to accept it, But it's to see how we are reconciled and live with each other in the tension of those differences, in the tension of those divisions. Because the reality is that the church is made up of frail and weak and broken and damaged people. People like you and people like me. Some words of Dallas Willard always challenge me. He says this, The natural condition of life for human beings is one of reciprocal rootedness but when we come to deal with spiritual formation of our social dimension we have to start from our woundedness the exact nature of the poison of sin in our social dimension is fairly easy to describe though extremely hard to deal with it has two forms assault or attack withdrawal or distancing or to put it more simply Hurt people, hurt people. Now the challenge of the church is that probably you, like me, have higher expectations of your fellow Christians than you do with other people outside. You join a church and you think this is supposed to be a place of love. This is supposed to be a place of acceptance. This is supposed to be a place of forgiveness. And therefore it's even more shocking and even more hurtful when you encounter attitudes and behavior that is damaging to you. Perhaps it comes from a church leader like me. Perhaps it comes from somebody else who's a member of your church. But the reality is that hurt people hurt people. And what I want to end with this evening is something very simple. And I want to ask you, 
what is the equivalent of that ladder in Jerusalem for you? What was the incident that happened in your life that has left you bruised and damaged and hurt and angry? What was the conversation with somebody in your church, somebody in your Kirk session, somebody in your vestry, somebody who was one of your deacons perhaps, somebody who was one of your elders, somebody who was one of the clergy, somebody who was in your home group, somebody who was in your youth group, somebody who was in your sphere of influence that deeply damaged you and hurt you. And even now, for some of you, decades later, It still rises to the surface every now and again. You're reminded of it. You suppress it. You push it down. But for you, it's it's like that ladder in Jerusalem. And you won't fight physically over it because you're nice and a Christian. But actually all that happens is that you internalize it. And it's still there. And it's there sometimes every day. For some of you, it's there every Sunday when you go to church. What's the equivalent of that ladder in Jerusalem for you? What perhaps are the broken relationships that we're called to repair? What perhaps are the broken relationships in our churches or between our churches? Where this evening do you need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to be kinder, gentler, more patient with people in your church or the people who lead your church? Where perhaps do you need to forgive or ask forgiveness from? It's not the same as as reconciliation perhaps. There's a whole, whole school of thought about whether it is and whether it isn't. That may be involved, reconciliation, but not necessarily so. But the fact is that Jesus prayed that we might be one, not for its own sake, but that the world might believe. And what Jesus was praying was that we might be God's visual aid. That if you like, the world might get a glimpse into your church and might get a glimpse into the relationships in your church and might get a glimpse into the way that conflict is dealt with in your church. And might see the way that we rub up against each other and where we we bring out the worst as well as the best in each other because we have higher expectations of each other in the church. And the world might look at your church and the world might look at my church and say, well, if God can work in that lot, he could work in me. If God can work in that lot, he might work in me. So I'm going to ask that we're quiet and we just have a time of waiting on the Holy Spirit. And as I said last night, I I don't know if there's a Northern Ireland way of doing this. I don't know if there's a New Horizon way of doing this because I've never been before and I'll never be asked back. (laughs) So I can only do this the way that I know it. And it's a way that I've seen done for about 25, 30 years. And it's a way that I've encountered God through this myself. And if it's helpful for you, 
I pray that it might be. If, if it's not, I'm sorry, uh, and I really am sorry. But all that we're going to do is, is pray one of the ancient prayers of the church, come Holy Spirit. And then ask God to bring to our minds, to bring to light, bring into our hearts things that he's already been stirring over the last 40 minutes. And it's in the area of relationships. It's in the area of brokenness. It's in the area of humility. It's in the area of a lack of humility or a lack of gentleness or a lack of patience or a lack of kindness. And our hope, our desire, our prayer that God might pour out his spirit and make us kinder, gentler, more humble, more patient people so that other people outside the church might see Jesus in us and in our relationships. So let's be quiet just where we sit and perhaps you want to just close your eyes. If it helps, if you want to put your hands out in an attitude of receiving, it's not a magical thing, but imagine a sort of, you're carrying a tray, just put your hands out. And all you're saying to God with your physical body is, Jesus, I want to receive from you. That's all you're saying. It doesn't make you more or less spiritual if you do or don't do it. But it's just a physical attitude, that re- expression that reflects an attitude perhaps that's inside. And with our eyes closed, we just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come. So Holy Spirit, thank you for the sense of your presence in this place this evening. Thank you that you've already been moving in this place. Thank you again as we have heard already that this is a thin place. That this is one of those places where the divide between heaven and earth, for some reason that we do not understand, is perhaps thinner. And so, Holy Spirit, we want to invite you to come now. We want to invite you to come in a different way. And Holy Spirit, as you come, we want you to bring peace. And we want you to bring gentleness. And we want you to bring kindness. And for some of us who think more highly of ourselves than we ought, we're being brave this evening and we're daring to ask that you might humble us. That you might increase in us humility. For some of us, Lord, we want to ask your forgiveness tonight. We want to ask your forgiveness for the relationships within our church or perhaps with other churches. With churches that we used to be a part of, perhaps. With church leaders who hurt us or whom we hurt. And this evening we want to say that we're sorry. And we want to ask your forgiveness. 
And for some of us, as a result of this evening, there might have to be an email that's sent. There might have to be a phone call that's made. We might have to be old school and write a letter. Or we might have to ask somebody to meet us for coffee. Because there are relationships that need mending. And there's forgiveness that needs to be sought. And just as we're still, and as we're quiet, and everyone's eyes are closed, if you know that Jesus is asking you this evening to reach out to somebody where there is a broken relationship, and one of the, the really difficult things that Jesus says, he says, if you think that your brother and sister has something against you, then it's your job to make the first move. He doesn't say, if you have something against your brother and sister. He says, if you suspect, if you think, if you feel that your brother or sister has something against you, you have to make the first move. So you may be sitting there now thinking, Jesus, that's not fair. It wasn't my fault. As far as I was able, as far as I am able, I am not aware of anything that I did or said or thought that led to this situation. But even so, Jesus asks, if you think your brother or sister has something against you, you are to make the first move. So if that's you, if there's a relationship in your life like that, in your church, in your history, in your past, then I'm just going to simply ask you to stand where you are. Just as a sign between you and God. Just stand where you are. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but just stand where you are. Again, it doesn't make you more or less spiritual if you do stand or don't stand. Thank you to those of you who are being brave enough at the moment. For the rest of us, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Anybody else sensing that Jesus is asking them to make that first move? There's a relationship with a church leader. There's a relationship with somebody perhaps in a youth group. There's a relationship perhaps in a home group. Perhaps it's a church that you left. And if you're honest this evening, you didn't leave as well as you could. And there are relationships that are still broken. 
If you know that Jesus is asking you to make the first step, then just stand where you are. And just where you stand, I'd love to pray for you. Father, thank you for each of these individuals. Thank you that you know each of their situations. Thank you that you know the pain, the hurt, the confusion, the anger, the sleepless nights, the stress that is represented by these people standing now. And Father, we want to pray for your Holy Spirit to come upon them and to equip them. That you would give them the courage, that you would give them the determination, that you would give them the resolve that they will need over the next few hours and over the next few days. Perhaps to write that email, perhaps to make that phone call, perhaps to write that letter, or perhaps to ask for that person to meet them for coffee. And we're just praying, Father, for healing for each of these people who are standing. And we're asking for forgiveness. And in some cases, we are asking for reconciliation. And we pray for for lives to be transformed and to be changed and for people's histories to be rewritten as a result of this moment. And that something supernatural will be released now into your life. And the Holy Spirit will go ahead of you and be behind you and be at your left and be at your right. He's not promising that it's going to be easy, but he is promising that he's going to be there. You are not responsible for how the other person responds. You are only responsible for your part. So, Father, we just pray for these people and ask for your blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen.